This is Diet of Brussels. Uh, welcome to the post-membership first episode. Uh, the fact it's taken me uh, a month to get round to recording this uh, highlights a number of key points that we might think about. Firstly, that uh, it's getting hard to say much very often uh, with any great certainty. Uh, and secondly, uh, despite my protestations in the previous episodes, uh, I grow weary of the process. But I think this is now a, a really good point at which to take a stock check of uh, that Brexit process because we're here now at the end of February. We're just about to start the first uh, round of talks on the future partnership between the EU and the UK. And we now finally have some documents to hand that uh, will give us uh, a sense of what might be coming down the line. Before I get into that, though, I do want to think a little bit about the immediate experience of non-membership for the UK. Because uh, the most striking thing has been the way in which that issue of Brexit has fallen markedly off the list of priorities and concerns of politicians and of the media. Uh, the four weeks that we've had since the UK left have not been marked by much activity. Now, there are some very good reasons for that. Most uh, obvious is that the transition period that's in place until the end of this calendar year means that substantively nothing has changed to uh, take our uh, inner Theresa May. Uh, but also we know that the Labour Party is still preoccupied with a very long uh, selection process for a new leader, which uh, will come round to uh, at the end of next month, uh, well, the beginning of April, in fact. So at that point, we might get some sense about what the opposition uh, might be doing here in the UK. But also, really importantly, the government has taken a very conscious strategy of downplaying this issue. So if you go on the government website, you won't find the word Brexit. You'll find transition period. Uh, instead, uh, you scarcely find mention of the EU. Uh, so if you're not looking, you might struggle to see them talking about it. And certainly there has not been a big push on that front. So what activity there has been has tended to be more technical, more uh, procedural kinds of aspects rather than the really big grandstanding. And often it's come round the edges. So we're starting to see now the government putting forward its legislation on fisheries and agriculture, on immigration uh, a couple of weeks ago. All these things which follow from leaving the EU but which are not really about the nature of the relationship itself uh, at the centre of that. Now, as I say, uh, at this point, at the end of February, we now do have documents. So uh, the EU uh, has spent this month putting together a draft, uh, which it released a couple of weeks ago. And now this week it's produced its final version of a mandate to the Commission, who will be doing the negotiations again, which set out its uh, aims and intentions and the principles. And similarly, the UK uh, just yesterday published what it calls a uh, 
an approach to negotiations. Uh, it doesn't really need a mandate because it's in a slightly different position that the, the government's doing the negotiating itself, uh, so it doesn't need to mandate anyone else. Now, both those documents are intentionally similarly structured in terms of the elements that they cover, but it's very clear that they have some big differences in the way that they see things. So what I want to do in this uh, episode is just talk a bit about the differences, but also talk about the areas of commonality. And the big question that hangs over all of this is, what does the UK want out of this? Or more specifically, what does the British government want out of this? Because I think one of the things that has again become apparent in the last couple of days, as it has been apparent for a long time, is that the lack of a strategic objective in this uh, process remains a critical problem for the British government. Just as Theresa May spent her entire premiership trying to manage a situation rather than work to a goal, so too the Johnson administration is managing rather than strategizing. And I think here the tension is between uh, getting a deal and getting uh, a particular kind of deal. So you remember that in my previous episode we talked about the difference between getting Brexit done and getting Brexit done right. It's the similar kind of thing here with that future partnership. And the reason I raise this is that Whilst there is talk about you know, wanting a particular kind of free trade agreement, protecting British sovereignty, stopping the Court of Justice from having any role, things like that, um, it's also clear that uh, the language that's used in the British uh, document, the approach, is rather broadly constructed and carefully constructed, I might say, for all the... Uh, politics that surround it, that the operational clauses are uh, really quite flexible in large part. And uh, there still, I think, is a strong intention that the UK would like to be able to have a deal uh, to wave around. And you can imagine Boris Johnson on the steps of number 10 uh, on New Year's Eve, waving a piece of paper saying, uh, look, everyone said that we couldn't do it, and yet here we are, and we can go happily into the future, and now Brexit is done-done, rather than just the kind of done that we talked about back in January. The calculation, I think, is one of how much do people notice and care. Uh, the determined downplaying of this issue by the government is, if you'd like, not unreasonable way of looking at public opinion. People tend to think that this is an important issue, uh, and I assume that you're among those people since you're listening to this, uh, but for most people it is also rather dull and technical and complicated. So if the mood music is, we did a deal, uh, you probably aren't going to sit down and work through the fine print unless you have a particular interest. Uh, and even if you do have a particular interest, well, you will assume that something would have done, uh, been done uh, to protect you in all of that. But for most people who don't know one end of the EU from the other, or you know what the uh, dimensions of this might be, which are very substantial, 
uh, probably you'll just take a lead uh, as you're given it. And certainly, as I have noted uh, in recent months, you've seen a lot of winding down of public comment and debate. You don't see so many events. You see a lot of people who built up a lot of specialised knowledge moving on. Uh, I'm not yet one of those. Uh, maybe I lack the creativity to move on. But uh, for a lot of people, there are lots of other issues in the world, a lot of other issues here in the UK, even in the EU. And so for them, uh, you know, we've done the hot phase. This is now the cold phase, which also for them is very technical. And if you're not a trade specialist, uh, you might well feel that there is not much uh, going on here. Now, uh, again, the fact that we're all here suggests that perhaps we have a slightly different take on that. So let's maybe get into the, the weeds a little bit of where these starting positions are. The first big area of disagreement is what are we trying to negotiate? What's the structure? And there are two very distinct models here. On the EU side, there is something that looks like a single structure. Uh, you have different elements within it, a trade agreement, something on fisheries, etc., etc., cooperation in other areas, security, what have you. And all encased and uh, framed by uh, what they call an overall governance structure. And they've been talking about this for a long time. The idea is that you have a single set of institutions uh, and then you can kind of plug in extra bits as you go, uh, but you've got uh, a uniform uh, institutional framework. Now, the logic of this is multiple. Firstly, it's simpler. Uh, it means you've just got one set of rules and procedures across the board. Uh, you don't have to go and reinvent the wheel every time. Uh, and just it's much more parsimonious. You know, everyone says they want an ambitious relationship. So let's just lay the groundwork now rather than uh, later. Secondly, uh, the experience of trying to do it bit by bit, which, as we'll see, is what the UK would like to do, uh, was done with Switzerland uh, and the EU, and that has been nothing but a pain in the arse uh, for all involved. Uh, and I would refer you to uh, the discussions about uh, the Swiss uh, relationship with the EU uh, for more information about how that has been problematic. So the, the lived experience of multiple agreements is not a happy one for the EU and they, even before Brexit got uh, underway, were very determined never to repeat the experience. But clearly also there's a third logic which is that that kind of structure tends to allow more and more to happen. And if you want to build up a relationship again, this looks like the simplest way of doing it. And if we flip those things around, we can see why the UK wants to chop things up and just do it bit by bit, one by one. Uh, for them, it means that they can just do the things they want to do. It means that they avoid the, the situation which the EU now explicitly talks about of linking the elements and progress on negotiating. And saying, you know, if you don't make progress on fish, for example, then you won't get your free trade agreements. Whereas if you've got two separate agreements that are formally distinct, then it's easier to say, well, we've sorted out all the problems in the trade side, fish is a problem, let's just put in place what we can. 
So you can take it pragmatically and say, okay, it lets you uh, move bits on more quickly. Uh, it means you can also have the right rules for the specificities of the particular situation, but it also ring fences how this progresses uh, as we go along. Now, it's really hard to see uh, how we don't end up with something that looks more like the EU's position uh, on this, that uh, an integrated system is one that uh, makes sense, particularly when we're talking about the time pressure that we're all operating under, that if everybody has to do everything uh, when they could be farming out the governance questions, including the dispute settlement elements, to a single separate track, uh, you might wonder whether that's the best approach. Still, uh, until we get that first round of negotiations uh, done uh, next week, we won't really know uh, how that one plays out. But governance matters. You know, it sounds dry and technical, but it really is important, not least because it does, as I've said, include that issue of dispute settlements. The EU would like to have uh, an independent arbitration panel, so you try and sort this out between yourselves. Uh, if you need to get uh, an understanding of what rules mean, then each side's domestic court would provide definitive interpretations of what that uh, means. So in the case of the UK, that would be the Supreme Court. In the case of the EU, that would be the Court of Justice. And then the panel would use those rulings to help make uh, uh, definitive and binding uh, decisions on what should happen. And if you don't comply with that decision, uh, they would want financial penalties and or a suspension of uh, parts or all of the agreements, uh, and not just limited to the area specifically involved, but also to uh, other areas as well. So a pretty full-on kind of uh, dispute settlement mechanism and not different from the one that it is used in a large number of other agreements with uh, third countries. The UK's unsure about that model. Uh, I say unsure. It, at one level, it's very clear. It doesn't like it. On another level, it's more ambiguous. What it says in its approach is that arrangements will reflect the regulatory and judicial independence of the UK, which is fine, and accordingly there will be no role at all for the Court of Justice of the EU in the dispute, settlement, uh, dispute resolution mechanism. Now that second bit is a real problem, because if they mean no role at all, then uh, that will be a deal breaker for the EU that they can't, uh, it's not just that they won't, it's that uh, on the basis of previous experience uh, with the EU-Singapore uh, agreement where uh, the arbitration panel that was set up was able to make definitive judgments on what EU law meant, that went to the, the court who said, no, we are the only body who can make the definitive judgments and so you have to go and change that agreement, which they did. But what does no role mean? Um, the arbitration panel is separate from the Court of Justice. It takes advice on the meaning of provisions of EU law from the Court of Justice. Now, it's not that the Court of Justice decides on the merits of the case uh, before the panel, 
but it does provide input in much the same way that it does with uh, its current system of referrals to member state courts. That courts say, what does this mean? The ECJ uh, provides a ruling, and then the domestic court uses that to make its own decision about what that means for the particular case. So no role here is doing quite a lot of work, and uh, without a full expansion of that, uh, it's really hard to know whether this is as critical uh, a problem as uh, can be imagined. Now, uh, some people have talked about maybe using a Ukrainian uh, model, that the comprehensive uh, agreement that they have with the EU uses a slightly different approach. So it's not that this is uh, insoluble, but it is certainly problematic. The other two critical areas I think where we're going to see big problems are on fisheries and on the level playing field. So let's talk a little bit about those. Uh, fisheries is one of those really odd things where there aren't that many fishermen in uh, the world uh, and certainly not in the UK or the EU. It's a really small part of economic activity. There are more people who work in hairdressing in the UK than work in fisheries. And yet, who's standing up for the hairdressers? No one. However, lots of people are standing up for the fishermen. And uh, that's uh, an easy, symbolic industry. It's got nice visuals. It's very concentrated uh, effects, you know, that uh, a downtown in the fisheries industry will affect some communities very hard uh, and already has uh, been a very difficult uh, period for them uh, as their industry has gone into a structural decline and had to cope with uh, uh, the challenges of fisheries management uh, and climate change and all the rest. So fisheries here is a real hot potato. The UK says it would like to move something like the Norwegian arrangement, so you have annual discussions about access, quotas, uh, things like that. Um, the EU would like to maintain uh, much of what uh, happens under the common fisheries policy. So that's a structured uh, and permanent uh, set of agreements about management, about access, um, and uh, these are very different kind of positions. Now, in all of this, uh, there is no clear ground. The international law that relates to fisheries rights talks about the importance of maintaining traditional access and you know a lot of the things that happen with the common fisheries policy date back to pre-EEC uh, where already there was an entanglement of uh, rights uh, and obligations uh, on uh, maritime uh, powers uh, and this then is something that would potentially be a complication so we don't have a clear precedent in law about how this works however uh, the challenge here is that the political heat on this issue has been turned up very high and the symbolism for both sides uh, matters a lot. That uh, The basic problem remains that uh, a lot of the fish caught in UK waters is caught by EU vessels, but equally most of the fish that's caught in UK waters is eaten 
by EU member states. Um, and most of the fish that UK uh, citizens eat uh, comes from EU waters elsewhere. So the, the sector is fundamentally and basically entangled, and that's even before we get into the question of how you manage fish stocks, uh, which uh, is going to be true whatever the legal arrangements, that fisheries are in a fairly parlous situation and you need to have some kind of coordination. I won't even pretend to uh, give you an answer to that one, but I would refer you back to the interview that I did with Chris Huggins back in September of 2019. He talks really helpfully about the kinds of issues and dynamics that are involved, and it's uh, for all its uh, parochiality, uh, is actually a really interesting uh, case study of the way in which uh, this process is going to be very difficult at a number of different levels. The other area that I mentioned is the notion of a level playing field, and this is simply the idea that uh, when states have substantial protections for uh, the environment, uh, thinking about climate change, but also workers' rights uh, and protections, uh, all of these things are, come at a cost that you have typically to uh, provide uh, for higher standards, which makes your goods less uh, uh, cheap to produce. And uh, as such, you might want to make sure that one side in this negotiation doesn't suddenly drop its standards uh, to save some money and undercut you on that basis, for which we read the UK. Now, the UK's position is that it cares passionately about the environment, about workers' rights, about all these kind of things, social protections and all the rest. Uh, and in some cases, yes, it does have uh, higher levels of protection than the EU itself does. However, uh, largely as a consequence of the last few years, uh, the EU is not really willing to take the UK's word for it. So it would like something more robust. Now, here we've actually seen a little bit of uh, an advance from the EU that it originally seemed to be saying the EU, the EU will insist on the UK taking on uh, a commitment to keep the EU's rules in these kinds of areas uh, on competition law, taxation, labour protection, environmental standards, sustainable development, all these kind of things. What it says now is that it is looking for sufficient guarantees for a level playing field so as to uphold corresponding high levels of protection over time. So the level playing field in very large part is, can we get a commitment that the UK, with its own laws, will keep to uh, the same kind of level that the EU has? And uh, that means that the UK gets to uh, uh, uphold its standards and make its own laws and we avoid uh, any kind of competition on that basis. And the UK says it wants to avoid uh, using this uh, issue too. The one area where that, there is uh, more of a sticking point is state aid, so the ability of governments to bail out companies or to give them support. The, the EU would still want the UK to follow EU state aid rules, which is uh, an anomaly 
in the rest of this level playing field discussion, but one which is going to be uh, a real problem because the, the UK has said in a blanket term that it will not follow EU rules. So the issues around governance, fisheries and the level playing field are really uh, the most obvious problems. But I think it's also important to recognise that there are lots of things where there is less disagreement, largely because the UK has taken a very minimalistic approach to this negotiation. There's lots of things it says it doesn't want. So it's not looking for uh, cooperation, institutionalised cooperation on foreign policy or uh, security and defence. Um, it you know, links on cooperation on criminal matters, but not the European arrest warrant, for example. So it just wants to do a little. Now, it, partly it's because it doesn't really want to do very much anyway. It's also because the more things it asks for, the more likely it is that there'll be that cross-linkage that we've talked about. If you want this, then you'll have to have that. And even in terms of participation in other programmes, we see a very modest ask. It says, you know, we'll think about joining some research programmes uh, and uh, some other areas, but, you know, just we'll, we'll have to see what the terms are, make our mind up then. Uh, for Erasmus, uh, there's this particular formulation which says that they would uh, join Erasmus on a time-limited basis, which is much more... Uh, conditional and hedged than it is for other programs uh, which doesn't give much hope for uh, a long-term future. But in terms of the nature of uh, a goods agreement there is a broad consensus although the EU has again tied this to the level playing field commitments um, there's you know, language on both sides about services, but not really anything that goes beyond international uh, obligations. And uh, you, I think uh, other than that, there's not a whole lot there to be uh, disagreed about. So what does this suggest? Well, uh, a number of things. And I think really all of them can be best understood uh, in the context of the timeline that's now set up. Remember that by the end of this year, we need to have an agreement uh, signed and uh, at least provisionally implemented. So that means uh, you don't have to complete all the ratification processes, which take a very long time, but you have to at least be able to get to a point you can do the provisional. Now, we say the end of this year, we know that by the end of June, the UK would have to be asking for an, uh, an extension uh, if it wants more time. But June has now been made more difficult because that's also the point at which the EU uh, and UK will have a review summit to discuss progress. And the UK has said in its approach that if there isn't enough progress on the easy stuff, then it will consider whether it just walks away and just starts preparing for a no-deal uh, outcome. Now, I think at this stage we still have to treat that uh, largely as uh, rhetoric rather than substance, uh, mainly because uh, if it wants to prepare for a no deal, uh, the UK needs to start doing that now. Uh, and uh, we haven't seen any evidence or sign that it is doing that. Um, we had Michael Gove talking about the need to recruit 50,000 customs officers uh, by the end of the year uh, for this process. Uh, that's an awful lot of customs officers 
very much more than uh, we have at the moment. The, the EU as a whole has, I think from memory, about 140,000. So it's a, a third the size of the EU's uh, customs officer force. Uh, where these people come from, how you train them, uh, where they'll work, um, all of those are fairly basic issues that are not uh, adequately resolved. But June now becomes the crunch point. There needs to be enough progress to justify continuing talking and to not justify an extension. But uh, the logical way towards that is that the UK probably has to be more flexible uh, on its ask uh, in order to accommodate the EU. Uh, but then that raises the accusation that they are just uh, uh, rolling over just taking whatever. Now, the politics of this, I think, are, are fairly clear that, you know, do you want to look like you're a soft touch or can you get away with saying, well, look, we're working towards an agreement that nobody thought we could manage? That, I think, uh, will only really start to crystallise when we've had the first rounds next week uh, and probably not even then because uh, that will just be a sort of starting point and elaboration of positions. And remember, the British approach so far has been to try and backload negotiations. Article 50 was very much done at the end of the process uh, up to uh, late 2018. Um, and so you can't do that when you have to get something on uh, the table and looking like it's moving within uh, what will be uh, a very short period of time of just a couple of months, in effect. So the management of this, which has been held very close to number 10, is going to be crucial, as is uh, the extent to which uh, the UK, again, uh, is interested in getting a deal or is getting uh, interested in getting the right deal. All of these things are in the future, but as we step into this next phase, uh, it's worth reminding ourselves as a final thought that this is going to be much more complicated than Article 50. The number of tracks that we have, we've got 13 tracks of negotiation slated for the first round of negotiation. Those will not be simple, any of them. Even the ones that look relatively unproblematic still have some substantial issues. As we know from Article 50, where we had uh, uh, four tracks to begin with, uh, it's not always the ones that you think are problematic that are most problematic. Um, in Article 50, uh, finances was going to be the big uh, block on everything, and yet that was the first one to be uh, wrapped up. So it may be that the things that people know are problems and differences get the most attention and actually are relatively easy to move, and the things where people have said, oh, we probably agree, turn out to be the ones where difficulties lie. We'll review how this goes uh, in coming episodes uh, and as things happen, and I will talk to you then. But in the meantime, sit back and enjoy some more posturing on both sides. <laughs>